0: What's on display today?
1: What do a snow leopard, a lemur, and a bat all have in common? These animals are all significant to their local cultures and have been immortalized in their folklore. Both these animals and their stories have been collected and are on display in Northeast Ohio. Join me as we explore Legends of the Wild at the Akron Zoo in Akron, Ohio. Welcome to On Display Podcast, the podcast in which we explore the design, construction, and operation of exhibits and attractions at zoos, museums theme parks and beyond and celebrate what makes them unique to the visitor experience i am your host nicole i look forward to having you along on this special behind the behind the scenes journey today is february 10th 2017 today we're going to go back to the beginnings of legends of the wild which we discussed in the previous podcast in an exclusive interview but first a few announcements on February 24th, my friend Colleen and I reminisce on what had to have been my favorite exhibit, Adventure in the Valley of the Unknown, at COSI in Columbus, Ohio. While it is no longer with us, this exhibit had a profound impact on our lives and friendship, and the same can be said for many others. Join us as we talk about the trials we conquered, the frustrations we endured, and share what made this exhibit stand apart from the crowd. On Display Podcast has a YouTube account. There, I'll be posting the audio from this podcast coupled with photographs and video to bring these attractions to life, as well as other supplemental material. Please check back soon as I am putting together some videos for Legends of the Wild, and subscribe to the channel to keep on top of the latest updates. If your organization has something they would like to share, please contact me at ondisplaypodcast at gmail.com. You can also keep up with the latest news from around the attractions industry by following me on Twitter and on Facebook. the interview you are about to hear was recorded on-site at the Akron Zoo, and because of this, you may hear some things going on in the background or changes in the quality throughout the recording. Thank you for understanding. Today, I am speaking with Linda. Linda at the Akron Zoo about the Legends of the Wild area. Um, Linda, would you like to introduce yourself?
0: Uh, Sure, my name's Linda Chris, and I'm the Vice President of Communications here at the Akron Zoo. And I've been with the zoo for 25 years, so I have been uh, involved with a team of other zoo experts um, in designing the zoo and building exhibits and, and putting together the different exhibit areas of the zoo.
1: Um, And then the Legends of the Wild is kind of different in that most zoos nowadays group animals by regions where they live. The old way was grouping them by a taxonomic distinction. The Legends of the Wild, they group the animals together because they're important to the cultures where they live. What inspired the Akron Zoo to design the exhibits in this way? We wanted to try something different.
0: And so we were kind of inspired by not doing uh, the same thing, either by what they, what they call zoogeographic or taxon, and try, just trying to do something a little bit different to see um, how it would work, how it would flow. Could you tell a story and build a story around animals from different regions that weren't all the same species, or taxon, and so we kind of wanted to challenge ourselves to just think outside the box and try something different.
1: How are the animals chosen for this project? Were they already owned by the zoo? Was it the exhibit was built and then the animals brought in?
0: Um, it's interesting a, a couple points there. One is that the animals aren't really owned by the zoo The zoo is part of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, which is the accrediting body of zoos. And so as an accredited member of the, uh, we call it the AZA or the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, we work collectively with the other 250 accredited zoos across the country. And we try to do what's best for the animals. So if there's animals that need to, be placed somewhere and we're building a new exhibit for them or if they have like for example endangered jaguars and they want to provide a place where they can breed. Um, So animals come to us on loan from other institutions and there's not really a lot of buying and selling animals. It's really just doing what's best for the species and placing animals at accredited institutions based on the availability of space, the habitat that's available, and then whether you're a holding facility or a breeding facility and doing what is best for the animals.
1: So how would you characterize Akron? Are you more of a holding facility, a breeding facility, a combination of the 2 or a combination of the two because it all depends
0: on the needs of the particular species. So uh, for instance, when we initially opened Legends of the Wild, We were a breeding facility for jaguars because we had what they call a founder male. His genetics were underrepresented in the population, and so they paired him with a female, and they were successful in producing a couple litters of jaguar cubs, which then they get sent to other institutions and paired with other mates. But we were, at the time, we were just a holding facility for snow leopards. We had actually a brother-sister pair of snow leopards and then once the jaguars kind of their genetics were well represented by the litters that they had had then we now hold the jaguars we got a different obviously unrelated snow leopard female and she was brought in to mate with our male and we've had three successful litters of snow leopard cubs so it it kind of depends on what the zoo feels we can responsibly manage and what is necessary and needed for the animals that we care for.
1: It sounds like there's a lot of communications and a lot of working together to make it, that it, sort of thing work.
0: It is a collaboration among the accredited zoos across the country. And so um, a lot of the animals are managed through what they call a species survival plan. And so zoo professionals from different institutions volunteer their time and their expertise, if they have a particular expertise in a particular species or a particular animal. So, for example, Sumatran tigers, if, you know, the members of the species survival plan who coordinate the Sumatran tigers, most of them are experts. They've worked with tigers for years. And basically the best way to describe it is kind of like computer dating for endangered species. So they're looking at the genetics. And so they're looking at of the tigers that were in our zoos and aquariums across the country, which ones have underrepresented in their genetics, which are at the level that they need to be at. And so they're making those decisions based on what's best for the species and what's best for the diversity of the species. So it does get a little complicated. <laughs> There's a lot of science involved.
1: But it's for a good cause. Right, exactly. All right, so kind of going back to the legends of the wild. Um, so we have animals from three locations, the Andes, the Himalayans, and then Madagascar. Correct. What went into designing each exhibit How is the theming of each exhibit, tying the Andes to the Mexican jungle with the jaguars to the Himalayans? How did you make each exhibit unique while tying into the overall theme of legends? Um, Well, when we were
0: trying to decide on which animals, there's several different factors that we consider. Um, One of the factors is do we have the expertise on staff to take care of that particular species? You know, do we know enough about it? Does our staff, our animal care staff, our vet staff know enough about those animals and have had enough experience managing animals, either the similar taxon or the specific species that we feel that we can provide the best possible care and environment for the animals. And then obviously there's always budgetary. I mean, it, it's just silly to think there isn't. There's always budgetary constraints that you have to work in. So what exhibits can we financially responsibly build that provide all the needs and really quality welfare for the animals that are going to be living in them? And so we have those conversations. And then also, how what's the public experience? So we're looking at it from the animal side. We're looking at it from the welfare side. But we're also looking at it from you know, what is the public experience going to be and how are they going to view these animals? How close can they safely get to these animals? What's the message that we can share with them about these animals? And so it's really trying to tie all those pieces together to create an experience for our guests and quality habitats for the animals. We have avian experts here at the zoo. We have mammal experts here at the zoo. So we talk a lot about, you know, our experiences with those animals. And then there are a lot of really good Guides, animal care manuals, and exhibit guides that are provided by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. So that kind of tells us how much space we need for each animal, like how big their exhibit needs to be, how many holding areas do they need to have. And so all of that detail is worked through. And then you have to look at your site. So if you have two acres, what can you fit in that two acres? based on the exhibit size and the holding size that each animal needs to have. And so all of those things are taken into consideration when you're thinking through the design process. And then because of legends and wanting to focus on the cultural myths and legends of the animals, obviously we had to make sure that in the when we got kind of our species list put together, we had to make sure that there were good, um, interesting legends about each of the animals.
1: So the animals came first, and then the legends came second. Yes, yeah. When you designed the look of the exhibits, you hired outside firms, correct?
0: Correct. Right. Yeah.
1: How involved were the zoo staff in talking to these firms about the requirements of the animals versus the requirements of the guests? How did you marry all these things together, working with these outside contractors?
0: Basically, um, we created a design team, which included the architects and key zoo staff. So our avian expert, our mammal expert, our curators, they're, they're all at the table. And we have basically what ends up being weekly meetings for a couple hours every week, talking through all the details and then putting together basically a spreadsheet that says here are the requirements for each of the animals. Here's the required space that they need. Here's the number of holdings they need. Here's how they need to shift from on exhibit into their night quarters. And so there's all this detail about what the animals need that is prepared by the staff and given to the architect so that they can use those parameters to design the exhibits. And then with Legends of the Wild, we wanted people to feel like they were moving from one place to another place. So you're moving from Madagascar to South America and you're going, you know, through the Andes Mountains and and then you're moving from South America into uh, the Himalayas. And so there was some of that designing it and putting the animals that are found in the same region together. As you move through the exhibit, but that's not really the tying factor. It's the legends that's the tying factor.
1: So, when you look to tie together the exhibits, do you rely more on like the smaller things like the signage or the, I noticed there's compasses in the mm-hmm. ground, or is there a lot of guest experiences that also help tie this in?
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you're tra- you want the transition spaces to be well landscaped, appropriately landscaped, to have education stations or interactives where people can, as they're tradition, uh, transitioning from one area of the exhibit to the next area of the exhibit, where they can have something to do that helps them learn more about what they, the animals they just saw or the animals that they're going to see as they move through the exhibit. And so there's a lot of those little education stations or pockets or whatever you want to call them when you're in transition moving from one exhibit to the next.
1: I noticed there's also like little fun things like there's a waterfall going into mm-hmm. a waterfall pond and there's a little rope bridge for kids mm-hmm. to run on, which is really cute.
0: Yeah. And we take all that and think about the overall experience of how are the guests uh, going to have, inter- you know, interact in this space? What can they see? What can they do? Um, and looking at all the senses, what are they going to hear? Um, which the waterfall plays into that you know you hear that sound of the water rushing falling over into the pond so there's just a lot of things that we take into consideration about how we want the experience to be immersive and for guests to feel like they're really in that space or they're a part of that space it doesn't always work out the way you think it's going to in your mind or on a piece of paper Um, And so once the exhibits are open, then you kind of have to just, we kind of watch what our guests do to see if they are getting it, not getting it, if they recognize this is an experience they can have, or they, they just walk right by it and don't even really notice it. And then is it because... It's in a poor location, and it needs to be moved to a more, you know, um, closer to the pathway or in more direct line of sight or whatever. So we have to make all those kind of adjustments, too.
1: A lot of things on the fly, like adapting as you go. Yeah, yeah. Have, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: Well, you can plan everything out, mm-hmm. you know, but really until you see. It's just true of the animal side of it, too. Like, you can plan everything out on the animal side, And then, you know, you have an animal go into the exhibit and, oh, they, you know, they tear that up or they never go over to that rock that you put in there specifically because you thought they'd love to lay on it and bask in the sun, but they never go over there. Why don't they go over there? Is it too hot? Does it not get warm enough? And so you're constantly doing that on both the public side and also on the animal side.
1: I think anybody with a cat can really do the problem with animals to interact with their environment. Um, so how much has legends changed from the time it opened? that was in 2005, correct? Yes about yes. So it's been 12 years give or take. Mm-hmm. How much has changed from opening day to present?
0: The major exhibits have not really changed. One thing that we did do with the Lemur in the Madagascar building with the Lemurs, Is that um, we got, we had two troops. We had a black and white rough lemur troop, and they were older females, and then we had a ringtail troop. Well, they were also a little bit on the elderly side. So, what ended up happening was we ended up, because we had small numbers of both of them, we ended up putting them together and making one troop. And then we got a troop of four red rough lemurs. And so the species have changed, the taxon not, but the species has changed. Um, and then the other thing that we did in that particular building was initially there was no outside area for them. Um, we had the UV lighting with the skylights and different things, but there was no outside area. So a few years ago, we built an off exhibit area for them to go outside And so then we put in some shift doors between the exhibits and obviously into the outside area. So now the exhibit is kind of what they refer to as a roundabout. So you can take, for example, the troop of black and white ruffs and you can shift them outside and then you can open the shift door between the two exhibits and give the black and white ruffs and the ringtails both indoor exhibits. Or you can, you know, through the back, the night quarters, you can shift one troop and then have the other troop shift into the outside area. So there's a lot of different combinations that you can do. And it just gives the animals opportunities to experience different environments. And, you know, one day when it's 80 degrees and and July the ruffs might be out all day the red ruffs might be out all day and then the next day the ringtails get to be out all day so there's just it provides some choices and options and variety for the animals as well as for the staff that take care of them cuz they can kind of mix up the routines and so they don't really get used to necessarily one environment all the time, they get some options.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's what they call like enrichment, correct? When you yes. do different things to keep the animals active and thinking. And...
0: Correct, yes.
1: So, another enrichment that you talk about on your website is that you have a goat like species called the tar next to the leopards, and you have a capybara next to the jaguars, and that's supposed to be a kind of enrichment. How did that come about, and how did the animals feel about it? Um, It's kind of that trying to show the
0: predator-prey relationship, because in the wild, for example, with the jaguar and the capybara, you know, the capybara is a main food source for the jaguar in the wild. Obviously not at the zoo, and actually it's very interesting because there are times when the jags are very interested, and they will look through to the capybara, and the capybara have never seemed stressed. Um, they just seem like they don't even know that they're being watched by a jaguar, and when we've had cubs is when the it was like the cubs really were interested in like what is this humongous rodent on the other side of our our exhibit, and we can see them, but we can't obviously touch them and so and is the same thing happens with the snow leopard and the tarts like The tar, you know, you'll see them, they're just munching on their hay, they don't have a care in the world, and right on the other side of the glass, the jaguar will be like in stock mode, but it's like the tar has no idea. So it hasn't stressed the prey out, but it has given some enrichment to the predator.
1: I find that interesting because prey animals, for the most part, they seem very flighty Mm -hmm. and nervous because they are prey animals and they evolve that way. So it's interesting that Mm -hmm. the prey here don't really seem to care much, but the predators are all over Mm -hmm. being able to see the prey. Do you also like sometimes move bedding from the capybara and put it in the jaguar exhibit for them to play with and smell or?
0: We do. We do that. Um, you know, there's with enrichment, if you think about it from like the perspective of humans and like there's all kinds of using your senses. So sometimes we do enrichment that involves the smells so exactly taking the bedding from one animal and putting it in with another animal we also do different spices and so the keepers they're really good at trying to create new and fun or different um, enrichment for the animals and so and then they also learn like we have one animal that just loves empty pizza boxes and so it's obviously still got the smell from the pizza, which the humans ate. And we give them the box. And then, you know, we might have another jaguar that really likes cinnamon. And so the keepers learn what the animals really like. And so they try to do different things with that. Do you, you know, do you uh, spray some cinnamon or put some cinnamon in a in a bag and let them rip the bag apart to get to the cinnamon? And then they like to roll in it and rub rub in it or whatever so they try all different kinds of things you know our male lion Tamar he has this barrel that he just loves you know sometimes he takes it out on exhibit with him and there's nothing you're gonna do about it because (laughs) you can't really (laughs) argue with the lion um when they want when they want to take their enrichment out on exhibit with them
1: So what other enrichment did you design in the exhibit? You mentioned like a hot rock that they might lie on and then the toys. Are there other enrichment items that were built into the exhibit with the animals in mind?
0: If you think about, uh, for example, with the JAG exhibit, you know, they have that nice pool. And so that is enrichment. They can decide to be in the pool swimming around or laying on the edge of it Or they can decide, you know what, I don't want to get wet today. I'm not going in there. There's also the little cliff that they can get up on and lay there. And so there's there's trees, there's rocks, there's all kinds of different options for them to choose to be up, to choose to be down on the ground. We have that little, like a bench, I guess you'd say, where they can lay on top of it. They can lay under it. And the keepers also do different things in the exhibit. So they might go in and rub some scents on some of their favorite exhibit items. Sometimes when it snows a lot, they'll go in and they'll make a snowman and they'll put meatballs for the eyes and the nose and the mouth. And then they'll let the, the jaguars out on exhibit or not the jaguars, the snow leopards. <laughs> Too cold for the jaguars and the snows can jump all over the the snowman and get the meatballs and and that and like in the snow leopard exhibit if you think about how high that exhibit is part of the enrichment of that exhibit is the fact that they can get way up high and then what they see from up there is part of their enrichment.
1: Uh, Let's talk about another animal that I feel is very prominent you have two indian condors how did you design their exhibit?
0: Part of the challenge with the site is that the, the hill, but
1: mm-hmm. it actually
0: works out very well for them because Andes is hilly. Mm-hmm. And so there again, they can be down low if they choose, but they can also go up. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a, the rise on that exhibit is about 30 feet. So if they want to be 30 feet above the visitor, they can be 30 feet above the visitor if they choose to be on the ground or somewhere in between. And we also created that cave area, which was supposed to be a nesting area for them. Unfortunately... The male will decide that that's his area and won't let the female in it. Um, and so because of that, we created a, a separate like nesting box for her. So and the, there again, that's just kind of how are they using the exhibit, the behavior of those individual animals, and you just have to make adjustments to that.
1: Um, the zoo offers behind the scenes tours of some of the areas. On the website, you mentioned in particular the jaguars, the snow leopards, and the penguins. Did you keep like a tour in mind when you were designing these areas or was it something that came up later like, oh, wow, we can totally do this and get the guests really involved by having these behind the scene tours? We didn't. The tours
0: themselves didn't necessarily drive the design, but it wasn't that we didn't consider being able to do that. But it didn't necessarily like we wouldn't have designed a certain aspect of it just for the tours. It just works that the way they're designed also works for tours so um, you know giving people that behind the scenes or that sneak peek at what goes on behind the scenes it really is a great educational tool that we use and it really helps people to understand that there is a lot of science and there's a lot of planning that goes into managing animals in a zoological setting and it really shows people how much we invest in animal welfare and conservation and doing the best that we can do for the animals and and like when we take people on tours each of those areas has a kitchen and so people can see the quality of the food that the animals are given and just how much we we take care of making sure that the animal's diet is well suited for the animal and there's just a lot of detail that people get that when you're enjoying the zoo from the visitor's side of it, we're hoping you learn something. We're hoping you interact, you're interact. interacting with the animals and getting a very up-close view, but it, you're not getting the behind-the-scenes look. And so if people are truly interested and it's something that they're passionate about zoos, they're passionate about animals, a lot of times that's something that they really enjoy seeing that kind of behind-the-scenes
1: so I have two more questions. Um, it kind of think you kind of touched on this one, but what does the zoo want guests to walk away from when they go to Legends of the Wild? What is the one thing that you hope guests understand and take away from that exhibit in particular?
0: You know, our goal is to educate. To be an institution that educates uh, about animals and wildlife in general, nature in general. I guess. But when people go through the exhibit, I hope that they're having a memorable experience with their group or their family, whoever they've come to the zoo with, and that they're learning interesting information about the animals, that they're learning about the legends um, and how people perceive things and, and that, you know, different perspectives are, allow us to learn more and more about animals um, and how our learning has evolved over time the use of science and different things like that how ancient indigenous folks thought that condors brought the sun up into the sky every morning well over many many years using science we recognize that that's not how it works but back then it would have been a valid hypothesis as to how the sun gets up every morning and just an appreciation of cultural differences and you know I don't want to think ancient thoughts, but just cultural differences and that. And then also an appreciation and probably more than anything, you know, trying to connect people to wildlife, trying to connect them to the animals here at the zoo so that it increases their appreciation for animals and it makes them want to do something to benefit animals or not do something to help animals or change something that they currently do to the environment and they make a different choice that's more beneficial. And so it's this idea of building appreciation by getting people up close and connecting them to wildlife so that they'll care more and take action to help wildlife. And overall, that's the goal of Legends of the Wild. That's the goal of the zoo. is just to build appreciation for wildlife.
1: And then my final question Would you like to share like a memory or an experience that you've had with legends of the wild or something that people might not know a little personal anecdote? Um,
0: let's see here. There's so many good things. Um, you know, when our first litter of, um, Jaguar cubs were born, the female, Naomi, our female, she rejected one of the cubs. And so, our vet staff and keeping staff had to hand raise one of the cubs um, and so that was just really a neat experience to be able to be a part of that and to be able to get that close to a jaguar cub and just to be able to have that experience and it we learned a lot through that and then and then also once the cub was too old to be handled to kind of trying to reacclimate the cub to not being with humans and being with jaguars. And so it was just a really interesting ex, um, experience, but doing what was best for the animal because wanting to make sure that the animal survives from infancy to when it's old enough to survive on its own. And then trying to reacclimate it into an animal that's on exhibit and an animal that is able to, uh, be around other jaguars.
1: Um, I guess that's all for now. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. I hope our listeners enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. I wish to extend another sincere thank you to Linda at the Akron Zoo for taking the time to meet with me and offer her insights into this wonderful exhibit. If you would like to learn more, check out the zoo's website, akronzoo.org. There, you can also find all the information you'll need to plan a visit and see these beautiful animals for yourself. Join me again on February 24th when my friend Colleen joins me to bring you Adventure in the Valley of the Unknown, a one-of-a-kind exhibit that called Coast Side in Columbus, Ohio its home. Keep in touch with On Display through our social media accounts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. There you can find additional content and see what else is going on in the attractions industry. You can also contact me directly at onDisplayPodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you would like to help out on display, please leave a review in iTunes. Your comments will only help me grow and create the best listening experience I can for you. These reviews are very much appreciated. I am your host, Nicole. Thank you for joining me today, and I hope you'll tune in again next time on On Display. Pack.